I don't know if you're familiar with a TV commercial that was quite famous in the late 80s and the early 90s. It played all throughout the U.S., almost 24 hours, seven days a week. I don't believe it was shown here. In this commercial was the famous catchphrase, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. You see, it was a TV commercial to sell a home alarm system to senior citizens who lived alone, which is the case in North America where oftentimes senior parents don't live with their children. And so in this commercial, there was a senior who would dramatically act falling down, and they could not reach their phone, no one to call for help, no one to check in on them, and there no one would be able to help them as they cry for help. If only we could buy this device and with one press of a button get help instantly. It's actually no laughing matter when someone has hurt themselves and they are calling for help and no one listens to them. Wouldn't it be great to have that sort of device where you press a button and immediately someone comes to your rescue? We have that system in America called 911, although there are some lag in its time response. Here we have a similar system, but you know the realities. By the time you call for the ambulance to come and the ambulance gets stuck in traffic to bring you to the hospital, you may not be already on earth. But if there could be a technology and the implementation of it where you press a button and you get a lifeline, an extension of help, it would be great. But there is already such a system. It is a system set up by God. It is a system we call the church. All around the world, when the 7.5 billion people around the world call for help, it is the church that should jump into action. It is believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who should respond to these cries of help. This is the system that God has placed in this world, not in a device, but in an institution called the church. This is such an important lesson that Jesus teaches it in a parable. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, as we take a look at verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, as we continue our sermon series entitled Masterclass, Learning Important Life Lessons from the Parables of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a very familiar passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to look at this parable, not from the perspective of a third-party observer as Jesus tells what happens in the story. In fact, we actually preached a sermon uh, on the Good Samaritan two and a half years ago, and we looked at it from the third party as an observer to the events that were unfolding. But this morning, we want to change perspectives. We want to take a look at the perspective from the point of the man who is in need. And hopefully, from this parable, we will be able to draw out four biblical principles for how we as the church, we as the body of Christ, each of us individually as Christians, will be able to take on the challenge of helping others. Now, as a background of this parable, in verses 25 to 29, there's an expert teacher of the Jewish law, and he comes and he asks Jesus what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus throws the question back at him and asks him, what does the Old Testament law teach concerning the question you've asked? The expert of the law answers by saying that one should love the Lord God with his entire being 
and also love his neighbor as himself. Jesus acknowledges that this man has answered well, but that he not only needed to know the law, he needed to live it out as well. And Jesus knew that no one could live perfectly the law's standards and therefore would fall short of attaining eternal life. This Jewish law expert knew that Jesus was right about living out the precepts of the law. But he knew that he could not fully live it out. And so he tried to limit the law's effect. And so he asks the question in verse 29, then who is my neighbor? What he's asking is, who am I compelled to help? Who am I compelled to love and to be kind to? Who am I obliged to help? Lord, give me the limits so that I can live out to the best of my capacity and be called as one who lives out a righteous life and therefore obtain eternal life. We often do this as well. What's the least amount that I need to do and still be qualified to be considered a quote-unquote good person? Lord, give us the minimum. Give us the least we are to do to fit under your definition of what you want us to do. To answer his question, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now from it, we're going to draw out again four principles for how we, as the body of Christ, each individual Christian forming to make up the church, can be called to help one another. You know this story well, but let's take a look at it again, starting in verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. In the story, we find a man who's traveling uh, alone along the 17 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho, and there he is robbed. Not only is he robbed, he's beaten severely. His clothes are taken. He is left for dead. Now, we place ourselves in the position of this man. I'm going to ask you a question. If you are in this state, what would be your one desire? If you had been robbed, beaten, left for dead, what is the one desire that you would want? And if I took a survey, I think all of us would have a common answer. Our one desire would be for someone to help us. Someone, anyone. Left alone in the wild, left to die, where wild animals roam, you and I would have one desire, and that's for someone to help us. Now, let me ask you a second question. The person that's going to help you that you so desire, do you care what type of person he is? Of course not. When you are desperately in need, are you going to care who renders aid? If you've fallen and you can't get up, and someone comes to assist you as they reach out their hand to help you up, will you ask them first, excuse me, what's your religion? Or, or what's your ethnic background? Would we ask that? Of course not. That would be silly. Someone has extended his hand to help you up, and so you take it. You know, it's interesting, there's a, a little hospital in Israel called the Galilee Medical Center. Little is reported about this hospital and what they do. They're about 70 kilometers away from the Syrian border. And throughout these many years, during the Syrian civil war, they've been treating thousands of Syrian Arabs and Muslims who have been wounded in their civil war. 
In an interview, the hospital CEO said, the expression of love your enemy takes on great significance in this hospital. Those Syrians who are wounded often arrive in the hospital, sometimes unconscious. And they wake up in the intensive care unit, the ICU, and they realize that they are now in Israel being taken care of by Jewish doctors. At first, they are stunned by the devoted care, love, and compassion they receive from those who they have been educated to view as the enemy. In fact, he says, we try to learn the Arab language, the Arabic language, and we speak it to them to quickly break down the walls of fear. And soon it is replaced with a sense of appreciation and gratitude for the care that we give them. This hospital CEO says, on the entrance to every building in the medical center is a sign with the message, a human to a human is a human. That's our essence. Every person who crosses the threshold of this medical center is either a patient or a caregiver. We do not see race or religion. Do you think that the wounded Syrians who have been carried to this Jewish hospital care that it is a Jewish doctor who is rendering them life-saving medical treatment? Of course not. If you are to run to an emergency room in the hospital before the attending physician comes to help you, will you ask them, excuse me, may I know, are you Protestant, Roman Catholic, or atheist? We wouldn't do that. You see, I want you to see something, number one, if you're taking notes. First principle, when in need, you just need someone, anyone. When a person is in need, they just need someone, anyone. Now you say, what type of biblical principle is this? Jesus is laying out a truth for all of us that many Christians have forgotten. That when someone is in need, when you're in need, when anyone is in need, they just need someone to help them. If you're hungry and have no food, do you care who gives you that food? No. If you need money and are begging on the streets for it, do you care who's behind the window that rolls down to give you that money? No. A few years ago, when our church sent a team to Bantai and Cebu Island to help communities rebuild after Typhoon Yolanda, I was able to go with this team, and as I uh, was being driven around Bantayan Island, our team saw many tents, tent cities that sprung up. And interestingly enough, these tents were emblazoned in big letters donated by the Islamic Relief Organization. Do you think that those people on Bantayan Island cared who supplied those tents? No. When you are in need, you just need someone, anyone. And we as Christians need to understand this principle. Why? Because when people are in need, they don't care what religion or ethnicity their help comes from, but they will certainly remember who helps them. Does that make sense? They won't care where that help comes from, but they're going to remember where that help comes from. And if we were honest with ourselves and assess how Protestant Christians help people in need in the world, we'd fall far down in that list. The Buddhists do a great job. The Roman Catholics do a great job in charity work. 
They do it because it leads to their salvation. We should do it because our salvation is already secured, and we do it as an expression and an outflowing of God's love to them. But just understand this basic principle that when people are in need, they just need someone, anyone. They don't care where that help comes from, but boy, will they remember who helps them. Look what happens in verse 31 to 32. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Thankfully, as we put ourselves in the position of the man who was beaten, we hear footsteps. There are two people coming. The first one who comes is a priest coming from Jerusalem. Here is a man who for sure would help me, the one who was beaten would have thought. It is his job as a priest to teach the Word of God, to serve God by serving his people. He was an expert in the Jewish law, and the law taught that you are to help one another. Certainly this man who teaches that one must help another would render help to me. But can you imagine, from the perspective of this man, how discouraged and crestfallen he must have felt when this priest, the Bible says, simply walked by and did nothing. And then he hears the footsteps of a, another man, perhaps an hour later. Here comes a Levite. He was part of a tribe that was uniquely called by God to serve the other 11. It was in his DNA as a tribe to serve others. The Levites were like the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts of the nation of Israel. And here comes that Levite. He had just finished his service in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us he actually comes upon this man and he looked. He actually assessed the situation. And yet he did not render aid. He did nothing and he walked away. Can you imagine what this man must have felt? Again, discouraged. What the priest and the Levite demonstrated is what we call the action of inaction. The action of doing nothing. And my friends, you've heard, it, you've heard me say many times, what happens when you don't do anything? Nothing. Nothing happens. And that's what happens with a lot of Christians who are challenged and motivated. They leave the sanctuary, resolve to act by doing nothing. The action of inaction results in nothing happening. You can imagine this man who's severely beaten, perhaps the priest wearing his priestly garments and the Levite wearing his Levitical robes, he would have been very disappointed at these two individuals who were called by God to help others and yet they didn't even lift a finger to help him. He must have wondered, why? Why didn't they help me? Why won't they help me? And let me tell you what. If he knew that they were a priest and a Levite who didn't render aid, I bet you that when he got home, and if someone asked him, what do you think about a priest? They're terrible people, he would have replied. 
What do you think about the Levites? They're useless. Because now his impressions regarding a priest and a Levite extends generally to all of them. Is that fair? No. But that is the reality of the situation. Whether we like it or not, deep impressions are made of us as Christians through our actions. People assess Christ. People assess Christianity based on whether we help them or not. Although we may not wear a certain outfit that identifies us as Christians, they know we are. They know we went to a Christian school. We regularly attend church. In fact, we actually tell them we are Christians. So what happens when our tangible actions do not reflect the claim that we speak of? And yes, I know, practically and in reality, we can't do everything for all people who are in need. But that should not be an excuse for us not to do anything. Because I want you to remember a second principle, number two, if you're taking notes. Number two. The deepest impressions are made through actions. The deepest impressions are made through actions. Imagine if someone is in need and we do not respond to their cries of help, it will leave an indelible mark in their mind. Let's say, for example, there's a guest in our midst, and after service, they fall. And there are six people that surround this individual who falls, and no one bothers to help the one who has fallen. They will pick themselves up, brush the dirt off their pants, and say to all of their friends and their family when they get home, this Grace Christian Church is an uncaring church. Now, it could be that in those six Four of them didn't see the person fall. One had their mind ready to pick up their child. The other was busy on their phone. But the one who falls does not realize this because no action was made to help them. And so they will leave with a very deep impression that this church is very uncaring. That may not be fair, but that is the reality of how people make impressions and assessment and assumption with regards to the church and towards Christians. Just like if a young person sees an older person who's carrying very heavy bags, and that young person doesn't go over to the older person to offer a hand of help, that older person will think, oh, these young people today They are so unhelpful. Is it fair to generalize all young people based on the actions of one or two? No. But that's the reality. And yet positively, if someone greets you and smiles at you all the time, is pleasant and courteous, then you will say, wow, that person is really kind. And if you were to tell them you are a Christian, they would think rightly so. We make assumptions Sometimes on a one-time experience. Is it fair? Again, no. But that is reality. If I were to ask you, what is your impression regarding a particular airline? Give me your opinion. And so I ask you, what do you think about Singapore Airlines? I bet you the vast majority of you would say, ah, it's a wonderful world-class airline. 
They have such great service there. Always courteous. And if I were to ask that person who gave that opinion, how many times have you flown Singapore Airline? They would tell me once. You mean you flew it once and you think it's the world's greatest airline? And yes, they do. What if I were to ask, what do you think about Cebu Pacific? Oh, horrible airline. Horrible. Always late. Seats are cramped. And I asked them, how many times have you flown Cebu Pacific? Twice. Always late. You see, oftentimes we only have one chance to make a great impression. That comes, that comes out of the marketing world. Because there's only two types of experiences that leave an impression. Two types. A very positive experience or a very negative experience. Everything in between, no one cares. And that's why I've said it many times. If you're not going to try to live out a Christian life according to biblical principles, then please do us all a big favor and do not identify yourself as a Christian. Because this beaten man, when he goes home, and, they, and he's asked of his opinion regarding priests and Levites would not give a glowing report regarding them. Deep impressions are made through actions. It's not words, really. You can tell a person, sorry, sorry, sorry. You can tell a person, I love you, I love you, I love you. You can tell a person, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Words are great. But action is better. You don't believe me? Let me give you a quiz. If I were to ask you, hypothetically, in a quiz, do you remember 10 sayings of Jesus? Would you be able to tell your neighbor this morning, 10 sayings of Jesus, or write them down? You think to yourself, uh, I think I can. Uh, I think he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. What else has he said? I'm not sure. Maybe John 3.16. Maybe. If you think about it, can you even list 10 statements of Jesus? I don't think many of us can. But if I were to give you another quiz and I were to ask you, list down on a piece of paper or tell your neighbor 10 things that Jesus did. Oh, I think we get that list pretty easily. He walked on water. He healed the blind. He made the lame walk again. He died on the cross for us. He fed the 5,000. You see? People don't necessarily remember what you say, but they will certainly remember what you do. That's why it is a biblical principle. The deepest impressions are made through actions. Look at verse 33 with me. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus identifies this third traveler's ethnicity. He was a Samaritan. For those of you who are new to the Bible, a Samaritan is not a pure-blooded Jew. He was of mixed race, a group of people that were hated by the pure-blooded Jewish people of that time. And so, of course, the Samaritans felt racial prejudice, and therefore, the Samaritan also hated their Jewish brethren. Now, 
we know the ethnicity of the third traveler. But let me ask you a question. Does the one who is beaten and lying on the road, does he know that the one who's about to render aid is a Samaritan? Anywhere in the story, does he, the Samaritan, come before the beaten man and says, I'm a Samaritan. Would you like my help? It's not there. It's not in the story. The Bible tells us he also didn't come up to the man and said, excuse me, as he's moaning and groaning, what's your ethnicity? If I render you help, can you pay me back? The Bible simply says he had compassion. You know, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what ethnicity he has, both of them. It doesn't matter their religious background. The Bible tells us when the Samaritan man saw the one who was in need, he had compassion. It's about compassion. It's about looking at the plight of what someone's going through. And because of your love for Jesus, you see as God sees them. You see them as people. Compassion is to have pity or sympathetic concern for the sufferings of others, and it is free of bias or prejudice. You may say, well, I'm a pretty compassionate person, and some of you are actually very kind. But to self-assess yourself, whether you're truly compassionate, you've got to ask yourself the question, when I show compassion, are there bias or prejudice involved? You see number three, if you're taking notes. True compassionate help knows no bias or prejudice. True compassionate help knows no bias or prejudice. We may really need to examine our own lives, both individually and corporately, to see if that's really the case. You see, people can really tell if we are selective in our compassionate help for one another. We love to help people we like. We're not very good at helping people we don't. All right, if you're going to give a glass of water to people and serve them, do you give it to only a select few or do you give it to everyone? When you greet someone, when you say hi to them, are, do you greet and say hi to them only to the ones you know, the people you like, or to everyone? You see, people, from children to adults, can tell very easily if one is being selective in their compassionate help for one another. And yet the Bible teaches that true compassionate help knows no bias or prejudice. I recently read uh, the story of Esther Chu. She is an Asian doctor. She's actually Chinese. Uh, in, uh, she serves as an emergency physician and an associate professor at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. She writes uh, these words. She says, we've got a lot of white nationalists, white supremacists living in Oregon. So a few times a year, a patient in the ER refuses treatment from me because of my Asian race. Dr. Chu received her medical degree from the prestigious Yale University School of Medicine. 
She writes, I, I don't get upset or angry, just incredulous over the, psycholo- the psychology of it. And the conversation usually goes something like this. I tell this patient, sir, I understand your viewpoint, but I'm trained at an elite medical institution, and I've been practicing medicine for more than 15 years. Now, you're welcome to refuse care under my hands, but I feel confident that I'm the most qualified here in this emergency room to care for you, especially since the only alternative is an intern training to be a doctor. And then she writes, invariably, they pick the intern as long as they are white. Or they leave. Heartbreaking, isn't it? Ridiculous to be so wedded in your theory of white superiority that you will bet your life on it. And she writes, sometimes I look at them, my kin, in 99.9% of our genetic code and fail to believe that they don't see our shared humanity. I used to cycle through disbelief, shame, anger. Now I just show compassion and move on. I figure the best thing I can do is to make sure their hate finds no purchase here. If you're a doctor, would you treat a patient who you know hates you? I wonder if the story changes if the man who is laying on that road dying says to the Samaritan, excuse me, I know there are a lot of Samaritans who walked this journey. Tell me, are you a Samaritan? Because if you are, don't touch me. We would say, well, that's ridiculous. And if you were the Samaritan and you knew that that person that you were going to help hates you, would you still extend to them the same compassionate help you are compelled to do without bias or prejudice? That is a tough question. You know, many of us, when we are not aware, we do it unintentionally. And you can say, well, pastor, it's unintentional. But none of us are perfect. Exactly, it's unintentional, but you must be intentional about not letting prejudice and bias affect your compassionate help. This week has been DBBS, and uh, I've been uh, walking around some of the classrooms, just enjoying uh, the children and the teachers interacting with them. But you know, there's one thing I noticed, and this is not a knock on them. In every class, often in the younger grades, there's a very cute child often chubby. Chubby is cute. Understand that. Even in adulthood, chubby is cute. It's always a really chubby kid, smiling, rosy cheek. And it's interesting as I I watch the interaction, it's not intentional, but the way they are welcomed into the class is a bit different from how the other kids are welcomed. Again, it's not intentional. We all have favorites. That's the truth. And if we like a child and and they've got a great personality, we say, welcome, it's so great to see see you. And then another child walks in. We just say, hi, it was good to see you. But there is a difference. Let me tell you something, my friends. That child feels that difference. 
You may not think so, but that child does. And I wasn't a popular kid growing up. Had a funky chili bowl haircut. I, I wasn't welcomed into the class like the other cute kids. And I can still remember the difference in how teachers welcomed me versus my more popular friends. And we do it unintentionally. It happens in schools. It happens in families. It happens in the workplace. It's unintentional. We, we tell ourselves, we're not racist. We don't harbor prejudice. We don't have bias. Well, if that's the case, we better examine our lives to make sure it doesn't happen. Because the world can tell if Christians pick or choose who they want to help. I remember a true story told by an American Christian. He was with his non-Christian friend, and they were vacationing in Mexico. Two buddies. And an old woman came up to them after dinner and wanted to sell them some shell necklaces. The American Christian just waved her off, not even giving her the dignity of letting their eyes meet. He had been burned many a times, solicited by these street vendors. However, looking for his friend, he was surprised to see that his non-believing friend was talking to this old lady who was selling her shell necklaces. And he heard him say, I'll, I'll take all of them without even haggling for a price. Told her thank you and gave her a hug after. The Christian asked his friend why he had bought all of the necklaces. It was a rip-off price. He probably could have negotiated for a lower price having bought all of them. To which his friend responded, it's only $20 for 20 shell necklaces. And even if I was ripped off, at least here is a woman who is hard at work for money versus just standing on a street corner looking for handouts. At that moment, this Christian writes, I was convicted. I asked God for forgiveness because here I was preparing myself to be a missionary to go on the mission field. And yet my unbelieving friend was more of a missionary to the people that I was to be called to. I know how it is here in Asia. I know what we think about street vendors and otherwise. I'm not here to tell you that you got to buy all of their jewelry or even entertain their requests. I'm just simply sharing with you the reality that as we assess a situation similar, we would laugh at all the foreigners for getting taken because we know where we can buy it cheaper at Divisoria or at Green Hills. But if we were honest with ourselves, perhaps for many of us, it's just because we don't have compassion. We don't even give them the time of the day. Because there is bias on our part. We've been burned in the past. We do harbor, even as Christians, some prejudice at some level. Just look at the language we use to refer to our Filipino brethren. I've talked to many. No wonder the Filipinos generally prefer to work for the Americans, to work for the Australians, the New Zealanders, the Canadians, more than they prefer to work 
for the Chinese or even their own Filipino counterparts. Because everyone can feel if there's true compassion or not. It's a hard lesson, and yet the Bible presents it very simply. When the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. It's not a question of race. It's not a question of ethnicity. It's not a question of religion. It's a question of how God sees others. He saw us as people worth saving. He saw us as people. Our true compassionate heart will come when there is no bias or prejudice. All are broken spiritually, needing a Savior. Maybe we need to examine our own hearts. Maybe we need to look at our own lives. It's unfortunate sometimes that this parable is titled the parable of the Good Samaritan because it doesn't really matter if it's Samaritan or not. Perhaps it would be titled the parable of one who helps another because that's what it really is. There are no Samaritans we know of today. But there are people that God calls to help others like you and me. True compassionate help comes when it knows no bias or prejudice. Look at verse 34 and 35. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. To our surprise, the Samaritan not only cares for him, he gives him medical attention, opening expensive bottles of wine and oil to wash and disinfect the wounds. He puts this wounded man on his own donkey, probably meaning that he would have to unload his burden from the donkey onto his own back so that this man could have a place to sit on his donkey. Carried him to a local inn, stayed the night at that inn for this now recuperating man, and then makes provision for his nursing back to full health and paying off his medical expenses. You read this and I read this and I say, this isn't reality. No one would do this. This is unheard of. This Samaritan goes beyond what is reasonable or even reality. The Bible is never reality. It gives us an ideal that we cannot reach. My friends, that's lazy thought. That's us justifying why we cannot do what we are called to do. You see, the man asked the question of Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is implying everyone. Oh, and by the way, since you asked, this is the type of support you need to give him and the type of help. We say, well, this is ridiculous. This is not reasonable. But you know what? This is the type of help that people will remember. This is the type of stories we all love to hear. And it does happen in this world. It does happen. And that's why we love those stories and we share them on social media. Because we know that we can't do it ourselves. 
but you can. And you're called to do just that. Because these is, this is the type of sacrificial help that will be remembered and reciprocated. Let me ask you this. Hypothetically, adding on to the story, if the Samaritan, after this man is fully healed, if the Samaritan comes back and asks the man, oh, by the way, it's great to see that you're, you're fully healed. By the way, just wanted to let you know I'm a Christian. And would you have 15 minutes to spare? Let's go get some coffee. And would you have 15 minutes to spare to let me tell you about Jesus? Do you think that the man who was helped would say yes or no? It would be a yes. If that man said no, we'd all call him a jerk. We'd all say, what an ungrateful man. Won't even give him 15 minutes. Every decent person who has been helped to the extent as that broken man, if that Samaritan asks him to do something, he would say, absolutely, you can have 15 minutes. Or that Samaritan man says, oh, by the way, I'm glad that you're doing better. If you've got a free Sunday, would you, would you come with me to church? I'd love to introduce you to my community. Would that broken man refuse that invitation? I don't think so. You see, I need you to understand something, number four. Sacrificial care is what will be remembered and responded to. Sacrificial care is what will be remembered and responded to or reciprocated is another word. People will respond and remember the type of care that is sacrificial you know, there are only a handful of people, less than five, who if they were to call me this afternoon and said, hey, Steve, I need you. Would you come over and, and help me? Only a few people that I would actually drop everything, take the next flight out, and go help them. And why would I do that? It's because I remember what they did for me when I needed them the most. Some of you, most all of you, I think, I wouldn't do that for. I'm sorry. You call me, I need your help, Pastor. I'll check my schedule first. You've been kind to me. You've helped me. There's only very few people who I would drop everything for because at my moment of greatest need, they came. When I couldn't get up, they picked me up. And you have those people as well. You know that to be true. We all help each other. But there's only very few people we would drop everything for to help them because of what they did for us. There's a church called City Church in Evansville, Indiana. The pastor announced that they would be paying off $1.5 million of medical debt for families in the city of Evansville, Indiana. The church worked with a nonprofit organization called RIP Medical Debt. In RIP medical debt, what they do is it buys back medical debt for pennies on the dollar for people living at the poverty level income. And so this little church contributed $15,000 in partnership with this nonprofit and erased the medical debt of $1.5 million to many families. The pastor, Jeff Kincaid, says this, it felt like something we want to do as a church it fits the message of the gospel. It fits our vision that it's posted on the walls of our church. City Church said that each of the families whose debt were effectively wiped out would only receive a note from the church. 
And the note would write, read this. We may never meet, but as an act of love in the name of Jesus Christ, your debt has been forgiven. Pastor Jeff notes, our vision has always been about to demonstrate the love of Christ to the city of Evansville, not just talk about it. We're not a mega church with enormous resources, so we always look for ways that we can make the biggest impact with the resources we do have. Christ's sacrifice paid our moral debt, spiritual debt, so sacrificing money to pay someone else's financial debt seems quite fitting to us. I wonder if City Church invited those whose medical debts had been wiped clean to come to church. Would they come? Absolutely. You see, if a person invites you to church, to an event, to an organization, would you respond positively or negatively based on how they have helped you is how you will assess it. Just like if you show sacrificial care to others in this world and then tell them about Jesus, they will be much more receptive to the gospel. For the gospel's sake, we as a church, every one of us, should go the extra mile to help someone in need with the hopes that one day they will also hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But yet, Today, churches are ineffective because we are not willing to make that sort of sacrificial care and concern because we're all too busy with our own lives. The Great Commission is something we know about, but it's not something worth living out. And no wonder our church, many churches, Churches around the world are not effective. Why? Because we're not willing to go the extra mile. Oh, yes, we help. We help others. But it's not a type of help that will be remembered and reciprocated. Examine your own hearts how you can apply this principle. Verse 36 and 37 as we close. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Jesus ends this parable by asking the man who asked the question, who do you think was the neighbor? The teacher of the law had to admit it was the hated Samaritan for him. And what does Jesus say? Go and do likewise. Now that you know what type of help influences and challenges the world, go and do likewise. And why would we want to do so? Because you and I are like that beaten man. Every single one of us. When we were in the direst of straits, when no one responded to our cries of help from eternal punishment, Jesus Christ was the only one who stopped to help us when we could not save ourselves. And He reached out His hands and He saw us as people worth saving. And the deepest impact was not that Jesus 
kept telling us he loved us, he loved us, he loved us. He showed it in an action. When he stretched out his hands and he died on the cross, he showed how much he loved us. He died in our place. And with the truest of compassionate help, he died for everyone without bias or prejudice, neither Jew nor Gentile. He died for all And when reminded of this truth, that we are people who have the same situation as that traveler beaten. If he calls us to respond when action, will we respond? I hope so. We call the one who was beaten a jerk if he does not respond to a favor asked of the Samaritan, hypothetically. What about us? Think about us. Jesus Christ saved us. He picked us up from the miry pit of sin. He died in our place, and then he just asks us, go and do likewise. We must be so ungrateful in his mind that we do not move when he calls us to help others. And yet we too have received that same help. Something for us to think about. Something for us as a church to be challenged with. The words that resonate in my own heart. Go and do likewise. As you and I are recipients of God's sacrificial love and care. My friends, let us as the church go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's struck a chord in my own heart as well. We all know about helping others, but when we help, there's so many strings attached. We help because it makes us feel good. We help because we're guilty and we want to feel better. And yet, when you teach us about sacrificial help, it's none of those. We help because we see as you do that every person in this world is created in your image, worth saving, Every person in this world is loved by you, you desiring that none perish. And we want to extend that help because we have been recipients of your amazing grace. Lord, I just pray that our church would respond individually and corporately to make an impact amongst our friends and our families and even those we don't know so that we can have the privilege of sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Move in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.